The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing in reverence this morning as we read from the second chapter from the prophet Jonah. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land which bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And he vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And all God's people said, Amen. Man, seated. Father God, spiritually, we once found ourselves in a whole lot worse spot than Jonah was in physically. Alienated, separated, without hope in the world. But God. We are here because of those words. As we seek to have some, just, just even, even the slightest degree of, of better comprehension and understanding of that reality. Father, we would count that worth more than all the gold and all the silver and all the world. So we're asking you to bless us in that way this morning. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Allow us to see and understand 
be changed by what you said here in your word. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You return to your feet one last time, please. We return this morning to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're reading verse 1 down through verse 10. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative, holy word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk. In them. All God's people said it. Amen. Amen. Maybe see it. Pray that God would bless the reading of his word. So before a doctor can prescribe an appropriate response, he's first got to come to a proper diagnosis. And any of you that have ever battled any kind of ongoing illness, you, you know how long and tedious and oftentimes frustrating that process can be, just figuring out what's wrong. And you know the dangers of charging headlong after some fix before you know what's actually broken. And so we spent three weeks together asking God to reveal to us in his word what's broken, what's the problem. And those of you that have been with us over that course, you know that the Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he has painted for us a very bleak picture with regards to the state of mankind. All humanity, by nature, children of wrath. The indignation and the fury and the, the holy anger of God. Everything within God repulsed by, by the sin and depravity and, and wickedness that he finds in man. Romans 8 almost seems to paint a picture of the whole creation almost, almost heaving and, and, and convulsing that it could be rid of this sin and this filth that we have introduced to her. And for a time, we see this picture of the God of the universe holding back the fullness of his wrath. While that anger piles up and that wrath is piled upon more wrath, his coming vengeance and the fire 
of his judgment, the consumption of his enemies. He's, he's holding that back for a while, but we know that the day will come. So we discussed last week that day will come at a day appointed by God. That every time we pray, God, thy kingdom come, we pray for the return of Christ. What we're praying for in a very real sense is the destruction of the wicked. So we gather together as a people knowing that that day will come. And when it comes, there will be no more mercy to be found for the sinner. No more opportunity for repentance. Nothing but the white, hot, holy anger of God. All the love that God has for his own name. The zeal that God has for his own glory turned now against those who have spent the whole of their life rejecting that. And to make matters perhaps even worse, Paul tells us that the whole of mankind is is oblivious, completely unconcerned with the danger that hangs over their head, having no idea the perilous path that they walk as they pursue their own ways, following after the course of this world, under the power of the prince of the power of the air, the, the God of this age. That because we are dead in our sins, we're not only cut off from the life of God, we're not only completely unconcerned with the things that would bring him glory, we're not only unable to do that which pleases God, but we're, we're blind and we're darkened and we're hard-hearted, completely oblivious, carefree and easy, having no clue that it is Only God's hand that stays his vengeance from coming. Returning to another picture that Jonathan Edwards has provided us, it is though God were hanging us over, dangling us over the the fires of, of hell. Like something as despicable to you as maybe a spider. We having no idea that, that the flames of hell are, are lapping up upon us just at any any moment ready to consume us, the wrath of God. Cursing the name of the one that keeps mankind from falling headlong into that place. This is the picture that the Apostle Paul has has painted. Mankind at enmity with God. Haters of God and therefore morally incapable of loving God. Unable to see anything of of value in the promises of God. You, You can't trust the promises of a God that you hate. You can't can't rely upon the promises of a God in whom you can see no glory. And so because of this spiritual deadness, because of our own depravity, man unable to even turn in repentant faith and trust in the offer of salvation that God offers in his gospel. Again, I say it's a bleak picture indeed. Why, as I prayed earlier, man is alienated, cut off from God. Without hope in the world, dead. We see some picture of this in John's Gospels. He tells us about a man named Lazarus who has been four days in the tomb. And you'll remember what the man's sister said to Jesus as he told the people to roll the stone away. In the King James translation, which I think is the best in this instance. They looked at Jesus and they said, Lord, what are you thinking rolling this stone away? He has been in there for four days. Lord, he stinketh. 
You see, spiritually dead men, they have no idea the stench that they carry with them. You go nose blind to it because you've swam in it for so long. You have no idea. The, stink of, the, the stench of death that clings to you everywhere that you go. And so I made an appeal last week. I, recognizing that, that surely in a, in a gathering, in a congregation of this size, there are those that are not yet amongst the saints, not, not yet amongst the believers, not yet following Christ Jesus is Lord. And so I, I made an appeal to you last week. Knowing that what we need salvation from is God. And knowing that God has offered that salvation in one place and one place only in his son, Christ Jesus. I made the appeal last week. I cried out to you. I said, if this is you, if you have not yet turned and trusted in Christ, would this not be the day that you fly to him? That you run to him? That you hide in him. But I need to be clear. Ephesians chapter 2 is not an evangelistic text. Ephesians chapter 2 is not a story about how you can be saved. It's a story about what God has already done. See, because I've said that dead men are completely oblivious to their deadness... None of these things are really going to resound with them unless God does something. You, you know the movie Sixth Sense. I don't, by now, I shouldn't even have to say spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, just boo on you, okay? <laughs> but you remember the little boy, he looks at, where's the main guy? Bruce Willis. He looks to Bruce Willis and he says, look, I see dead people. And the sad thing is the dead people don't know they're dead. Dead people don't know they're dead. They think they're free. They think they're alive. And in fact, they are, of course, active in their sin. And it's a very active kind of deadness. So we can't exactly blame them for not knowing that they are dead. But I remind you this because you must recognize that what, what we see here in this chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's a story for us about a thing that God has already done. He's speaking here to the saints. To those who are already in Christ Jesus, for those that had heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and believed in him. He's saying, looking backwards now, you see your deadness. Looking backwards now, you know the stench that once clung to you. Looking backwards now, you know that you were once children of wrath and sons of disobedience. Now let me tell you how you get from there to in heaven. How God did, take, God, did God take you from the pits of Sheol and raise you up into the heavenly places where endless blessings await you even now. But it seemed to me that if we were going to speak about the wrath of God and the coming judgment of God and the reality of his hatred towards sin and sinners, it seemed appropriate to me at that point to call out to men, knowing that it's by this word that God calls men to life, to then use this word to call out, not knowing who amongst you might hear not just the words of a preacher, but the words of God calling you to life? I called out to you to fly to Christ. But again, I say at the same time, knowing that unless God does something, unless God works and moves and acts in a magnificent way, a powerful way, the dead man can't do this. That dead men do not have the ability to open their own eyes. 
Dead men do not have the ability to cause themselves to come to life. That dead men don't have the ability to change their own hearts. That dead men don't have the ability to make themselves love that which they once hated. Dead men don't have the ability to embrace that which was once a stumbling block and a scandal to them. I would call you. I haven't given you homework in a while. I've, I've gone a little bit soft on you. And so I call you today to go home and read the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Just read that passage and ask yourself, is that not what he's painting a picture for us of there? The reality that natural man doesn't have the ability. Not only does he not have the ability to love God, not only does he not have the ability to please God, not only does he not have the ability to walk in faith, he doesn't even have the ability to understand the things of God. I recognize that for many within this room, perhaps, as I stand up here and I call out to you and call you to fly to Christ, to run to Christ, that judgment day awaits in the only place in all the universe where you will be safe is in Christ. I recognize that for some in this room, it sounds like nothing but Charlie Brown's teacher. It's just mumbling. It's just rambling. It's, it's, it's nothing. So I recognize that even as I present the gospel and even, even as I plead with men to turn to Christ and be saved, I recognize that they are not capable of doing this thing. Not any more so than a leopard is capable of changing his spots. And I remember when I first came to an awareness of this. I've shared it with you, not necessarily on a, on a Sunday morning, I don't think, but we've talked about it often on Wednesday nights. When, when I first came to recognize the true depravity and inability of man to turn and repent and believe in Christ Jesus as Lord, I remember how terrified I was and how confused I was. I, I didn't... I felt like I couldn't even look God in the eye. He, he wasn't who I had believed him to be, and I wasn't who I once believed myself to be. And I've, I've told a story before about how as miserable as I was in that moment, Amanda was more miserable. She took me by the hand one Sunday morning, and she led me to the front of the church, and she took me to the pastor, and she said, my husband's broken, fix him. invent such a doctrine who would invent such an idea that man is lost and dead and completely unable to do anything about it I remember this I felt a bit like Jesus disciples after the encounter with the rich young ruler when they looked to him and they said well then Lord who can be saved and what was his response with man, it's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. It wasn't until I came to that point that I began to find real joy and hope and freedom in this reality. No longer did I take my own salvation for granted. I realized what I've said to you often over these last three or four weeks. Christian, you're a miracle. It took a supernatural act from the creator of the universe to make you a Christian. My worship changed. I could look God in the eye all of a sudden. As a matter of fact, some things that didn't otherwise make sense all began to come together. And I found myself leaning deeper into him, trusting him more, growing in my admiration 
And my hope that this God really has stored up for me treasures in heaven and inheritance that will not fade away. But I recognize that this is a work that God's got to do. He's got to open your eyes to see this. You can't see what you don't see. That's the reality. Men who reject a doctrine like this, they're not lying. They just don't see it. And so there's a couple of reactions that often come when we come up against something like this. Whenever we, we start to see or someone starts to point out to us the reality that it's, it's impossible for us in our own power to cause a man to come to life, to regenerate dead souls, to, to cause men to repent and, and trust in Christ. And we can grow incredibly frustrated and fearful. And so driven by love for the people around us and driven by a desire to be useful for the kingdom of God because we live in a culture that for so long has taught us that the only way your ministry is successful is if you can point to numbers. How many people have you baptized this year? How many people have you led to Christ this year? I don't know. With me, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But because we want to be useful, because we desperately love the lost people who are around us, we start to make some mistakes. You see, we look to these dead people and we know that if we present the God of Scripture, if we present the Christ Jesus who is, they're going to reject him. That's all dead men can do. And so subconsciously, subliminally, subliminally without even knowing it, again, driven by love for the people sitting across from us, what do we do? We present to them a Jesus that they were willing to accept. We present to them a Jesus that appeals to their flesh. We present to them a Jesus that cares more about their emotions and their experiences and their hurts and their habits than he does about the holiness of God. We present to them a Jesus that winks at sin. We present to them a Jesus that does not demand that they die to themselves and take up their cross and follow after him. We remove all talk of God's anger towards sinners. We remove any conversations about the wrath of God. Without even knowing it, we take the cross of Jesus Christ. The ultimate picture of God's wrath and his love coming together for the sake of his people. And we turn it into little more than a cosmic Hallmark card. Just some type of romantic overture. Look at how much God loves you. That's all it is. It's just a signpost screaming out that this is the way that God loves you. And so instead of preaching Christ and Christ crucified, I give you 10 habits, 10 hints, 10 tips on how to heal your marriage. Five pointers on how to fix your checkbook. Four ways that you can make sure that you raise your children to be good little boys and girls. You see, because I've missed the diagnosis. Because I've misunderstood what the problem is. Because my heart can't bear to embrace it. I begin to present to the people this picture that the only thing they really need to worry about are the patterns of this life. Or the hurts of their history. Or the, the emotions of the moment. I begin to nip around the edges. I'm, I'm coming to dead men and I'm rearranging the flowers around them and acting as if that's going to do something. As if that's going to fix their problem. In short, what I present to them is a lifeless Christ. A Christ who's little more than a life coach. 
He's just here to show you how to get on the right path. He's a Christ who can't save them. Christ who appeals to dead men in their flesh. And as a result of this, it's only natural then that we're going to change the conversation about what repentant faith really looks like as well. We turn repentance into nothing more than worldly grief, just some general sense of remorse over the bad things that we've done. And we completely transform the idea of sin. No longer does God's word define for us what is sin. No longer do we talk about men who are born guilty before God because of our union with Adam. And we begin to allow the world around us to define what is sin. Not just what classifies as sin, but what is sin. And then we transform any conversation of faith. We don't, we, we turn it into just little more than the, the tipping of a religious cap towards Jesus. Just walk down an aisle, sign a card, say a pledge, repeat a prayer after me, and all your eternity is buttoned up. Now, if I speak as one with experience, that's because I have it. I've, I've, I've done VBS for years where I've sat in front of children, children that I love, who belong to parents that I love. And I want nothing more than to be able to go to this parent who is wrapped up in knots over the, the eternal state of their child's soul. And I want nothing more than to be able to go to them and say, your child is safe. Your child is saved. Your child is secure. And so what do I do? I water down Christ. I transform the gospel. I give to dead children the kind of tasks they can do, and then I call it a revival. I call it a mighty work of God. If I had a dollar for every time I sat down in this hallway and I looked at a child who repeated some prayer after me and I said, no matter what happens for the rest of your life, I will see you in heaven. Then they left this place and they went on wandering away like the rest of the world with some false sense of assurance that all was well. Because for one momentary second, they were willing to utter the words, Jesus is Lord. Not knowing who this Jesus really was and having less of an idea of what true repentant faith actually looked like. Because it's frustrating to preach to dead men. It's hard work to preach to dead men. I don't like feeling helpless. I don't like being told that I'm on an impossible task and I'm completely dependent upon God. And so instead of doing the thing that I ought to do, instead of delivering to men the unvarnished word of God and then falling on my face before that same God and saying, if you don't send your spirit, nothing will happen. I do the things that I can do. And I call them to do the things that they can do. Again, I say we look around and we call it a revival. In reality, it's weekend at Bernie's. We're propping up dead men and dancing them along and pretending like they're doing the things of God. One of the surest ways that you can know that this has happened is when you find yourself teaching others or preaching towards others and always going to the imperatives. You, you see, that's not the way that Paul writes, is it? We're going to find the first three chapters of this book. He's wanting to make sure that we recognize what God has done. The ways in which God has called you to life. The security of your eternity. He wants to make clear that you know this is the power of God that is at work in you. And it's only from there that you're capable of doing the things that he has now called you as his saints to do. So if we find ourselves 
consistently calling out to dead men, calling them to do the things that they cannot do, will consistently reveal our heart to be out of whack, out of line with God's. And so because of that, the, the, the reason that I say all this, because you're probably sitting there thinking, time out, dude. You told me three weeks of bad news and then we get to the really good news. When does the good news start? And we're getting to it. We want to touch on it today as we prepare to come together to the Lord's table. But the reality is we spent three weeks on the bad news. I don't, I'm not one that plots out my sermons weeks ahead. God does not work with me like that. He barely lets me see this far in front of my face. But I'm thinking we got a long time to go in the good news. We're going to spend a lot of time reckoning with what God has done. With all that is wrapped up in those words, but God. But that doesn't happen unless we allow God's word to define for us the way things really are. Unless we embrace the impossibility of our situation and recognize what happens if God leaves us to ourself and our will as we are. Unless we recognize that all that God must do in order for us to be saved. Remembering that the context that we're reading this, these verses in comes as God is desiring for us to recognize the way in which his power has been exercised towards us. This is a story about God. This is a story about the power of God. This is a story about the way in which God has worked. And so Paul is looking to us as the saints, as Christians, as those who were once completely dead and happy to be dead in our hopelessness and sin. And he brings us to, but God. I had a guy fuss at me one time because I... Spend an entire sermon on just half a verse of scripture. I wonder what that guy's going to think when he finds out I'm going to spend this entire sermon on two words. And one of them a conjunction. But. But is a light piercing through the darkness. But is a change of course when all seems lost. But is a surprise. But is shocking. In this instance, but is supernatural. It's, it's something we could have never done on our own. But God. Given all that we have just said over these last three weeks about the state of man. Lost and dead and loving it. Enslaved to the devil. Following the course of this world, unable to please God, unable to know God, unable to turn and trust in God. And coming through all of that deadness and all of that hardness comes the word, but. Beloved, I ask you again, are you surprised that you're a Christian? You should be. Recognizing that it took no less power for God to call the little church going boy and girl, that little kid that was in church for nine months before they first made their appearance in this world, that it took no less power from God to cause that little child to come to Christ than it did the most hardened of criminals. I'm afraid for some of us, we've become so accustomed to the grace of God. We've become so comfortable with the gospel that we're no longer shocked by it. I don't just mean the shock that the God of the universe would offer salvation, but the fact that the God of the universe would choose you for that salvation. But God. We need to return to a state of being floored by that. 
but God. Adam and Eve knew what God had commanded. He knew what he warned them would happen if they did not obey that commandment. If they reached out their hand and took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will die. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sided with the devil. They dishonored their creator. They doubted the one who had provided them every last thing. But God came walking through the garden in the cool of the day and called out to them. See the first promises of the, of the gospel right there. You would raise up one to crush the head of the serpent. You heard the words that David read earlier about Jonah, and he's sinking down and down and down and down to the base of the mountain, and, and the seaweed is wrapping around his head, and he knows that death is imminent upon him. But God appointed a whale to swallow him up and vomit him out right where he belonged. But God. We know the story of Israel. God has done everything for them, calling them out. They were in slavery once, but God. He has placed them into a land they don't deserve, and they had turned their hearts after idols. They too had dishonored this God. Hard-necked, hard-hearted people dishonoring God. He allows them to be dragged off into exile by the Babylonians, but God, holding on to his faithful remnant, returns them to the place that he had promised them. We know about the young girl that the angel Gabriel came to and said that you're going to give birth to one that will be the Christ, the son of the most high God. And she says, how will this be? I'm but a virgin. And what was the answer? But God. That's the story of redemptive history. It's nothing but a long list of but God over and over and over again. And if we're really as lost and as spiritually destitute as God says that he, we are in his world, Surely we must rely upon the same kind of a thing, a but God. That if salvation is going to come, it must come from somewhere outside of us, somewhere unexpected to us, from something outside even the ordinary course of this world, because the world itself is going in a direction opposite to God. It's going to take a but, but God. That what man needs is regeneration. What man needs is a new heart. What man needs is the ability to see. What man needs is to be created into something new. Who can do that? But God. We see this thing playing out over and over again throughout Jesus' ministry. You remember after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus didn't water it down. His ministry, by all accounts, was booming at this point. You had thousands of people following him, literally eating from his hand. But rather than allowing them to define their own theology, rather than allowing them to tell him who he must be as Messiah, rather than allowing them to define what it meant to follow him, he says some really hard things and the majority of the crowd goes away. Just the 12 are left there with him and one of them, the devil. But you remember that they look to Jesus and they say, this teaching is hard. Who can hear it? In John 6, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The flesh is no help at all. Just as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, he said, look, that which is born of flesh will only ever be flesh. You must be born again by the work of the Spirit. 
The flesh is no help. There's nothing in the flesh that can cause us to do what must be done. It's but God. Now you realize that there's no but necessary for us to make it to hell. There's no change of direction. There's no surprise. There's no external course of action that must come. All that God must do is hand us over to ourselves. We're already following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, chasing after the things that seem right to our own mind and our own body, pursuing the desires of our own flesh. All God must do is remove his hand of restraint. There's no but God necessary in order for us to find ourselves being destroyed by God, body and souls in hell. Isn't that Newton's first law? That an object at rest or an object in motion will continue in motion in a straight line at a consistent speed unless acted upon by something outside of it. But God. There's going to be any change. Anything resembling life, it must come from outside. But God. You're going to be saved. If you're going to come to Christ in any saving way, truly repenting and placing your faith in him, it's a but God. Only he has the power to do such a thing. I want you to look at this text that we've just read, but God. And then look down from there and look at who is the actor in all of these verses that follow. Just take a moment to look with me. It says here that man was dead. Man was just laying there. He had no ability to do anything. But then here comes God and God makes us alive. God raises us up. God seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. God creates in us something new in Christ Jesus. That's the only way anything happens but God. And I want you to think about how crazy it is that we're talking about the one that comes, the one who introduces the but. And I'm so proud of our children for not giggling the number of times I've said but this morning. But that the one who comes is none other than the God who is filled with wrath for us. In light of everything that we had said, that everything within this holy God is repulsed by the sin in which we once wallowed, that this is the God who comes, this God who we have offended, this God who owes us nothing but judgment and wrath, that he is the God who comes. Not only, I say, offering to us peace, which in and of itself would be remarkable. That's why I believe we can look to John 3.16 where he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We can look to that and we can say, yes, God has truly loved the world in the sending of his son. Even those who reject the son, even those who will continue on in condemnation. It is an unmitigated act of love for God even to make the offer. For God to look to sinful men who deserve nothing but destruction and say, if you would turn and trust in my, my son whom I have given, you too will be saved. Un unparalleled love. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about this God who is rich in mercy. This God who has lavished his love upon us, not just offering, not just extending to us an offer of salvation, but bringing us to life to assure that it happens. Looking at rebels, looking at hard-hearted dead men, whom if left in and of ourselves, when he extends this hand of salvation, we would slap it away. Worse than that, we would try to chop it off. As he comes and he says, look, I am here and I'm here to set you free. We look to him and say, free? We've always been free. We've never been enslaved to anyone. 
As he comes to us and says, if you would just bow your knee to my son as Lord, if you would call out to him for salvation, I will shower my mercy upon you. And we spit in his face. But this God will do everything necessary for us to receive this salvation. And we see it again right here. Just look at the tenses with which he speaks. He says that he made us alive. That he raised us up. That he seated us past tense. That we have been saved. These are all things that God has done, already done, secured and guaranteed. Not just an offer, not just an extension, not just a hope. He has done it. But God has saved us. It's realized eschatology. It's redemption accomplished and then applied. All that God had planned in Ephesians 1, all that Christ has accomplished in Ephesians 1, coming by the work of his spirit to apply it to our life. Again, this isn't a man taking steps towards God. This isn't a man crying out towards God because guess what? Dead men don't take such steps. Dead men don't cry out like this. It's the God of the universe coming down to poor and pitiful and wretched and hard-hearted and dead men knowing that we could not look to ourselves for help. This is why he begins with, but God. He says, if you're going to have a hope of salvation, if you're going to have a hope of eternal life, if you're going to have a hope of being anything other than a child of wrath, then that help must come from something outside of you. By the way, look to God and look at his nature. You see that that's where he begins. He takes us to the very nature of God, rich in mercy, great in love, immeasurable in rich grace, full of loving kindness. This is what caused the but God. It's the nature of God. Nothing in us. We were not lovely. We were not lovable. We were not faithful. We were not obedient. We were not worthy in any way. Again, I tell you, this is a story about God. The nature of God on display. And if, see, if we're not careful, we can believe that we've got this God who is full of wrath and full of judgment and no love to be found there, no mercy to be found there. But then here comes Christ Jesus, our Lord, and he softens his father a bit. He convinces his father. But I remind you, as you go back to the first chapter of Ephesians, it's in love that he predestined us. It's in love that he has placed us in Christ Jesus. It's in love that he has sent his son. Going back to the words of St. Augustine from last week, in some remarkable and unexplainable way, even when God once hated us, he loved us. This is a story about the nature of God, the activities of God, the love of God. That while but God should shock us, if you're reading this story for the first time, if you're a believer on this side of repentant faith, looking backwards to what God has done, it may be a shock to us to learn the peril in which we once stood. It may be shocking to our system to recognize just how lost and damned we once were, but this is not a shock to God. None of this is a surprise to God. This is what he has ordained and predestined from before the foundation of the world. It's almost as though he were watching, as he was waiting, as he is patient with us, watching us pursue this life of wrath, watching us walk as sons of, of disobedience, almost giddy for that moment when the but God will come breaking in. When we will hear those words, I have not destined you for wrath, but for salvation. It's a gift of God just long before we ever came onto the scene. And when we realize what that salvation cost him, 
when we realize what these two little words represent in terms of the cost to God. I just walked through a series of but gods, but God would show up for Adam and Eve, and but God would show up for the Israelites, and but God would show up for the people that were in exile, but God would show up for Jonah, but God would show up as Abraham laid his son Isaac down upon that stone, lifted up that knife, and began made himself ready to take his son's life, but God spared that boy because he would not spare his own son. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But God, the God whom we have offended, the God whom we have rejected, the God who we have spit upon, the God who owes us nothing but wrath, that God, in order to extend his grace and his mercy and his goodness and his salvation into your life, gave of his beloved son. He did not spare him. Scripture says that a man might perhaps give his life for someone that was good. He might perhaps give his life for someone that was worthy. But for one who is unworthy, for one who is counted as an enemy, who is one who is one who has fitted himself for nothing but justice and judgment and wrath, would a man give his life for some as this? Well, certainly not. But God. But God has sent his son to purchase all of this. And Jesus spoke in these terms as well. You, you'll remember on the night when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he begins to speak to them about the new covenant. This is what was promised back in the prophet Ezekiel that he said, that look, that hardened heart, that dead heart, I will replace it and give you a living heart, a heart of flesh. That death that is within you that makes it impossible for you to please God, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to delight in my law and to walk in my statutes. That was the promise that they had been waiting on. And Jesus now sits, his, sits here with his followers and he says, the time has come. The ultimate but God is upon you. And what does he say? This cup that is poured out for you, it is the new covenant. Where does that new covenant come? In my blood. You should be all the more shocked when we recognize what this but God cost. God. We, we have this. I realized this as I was thinking through. I need to wrap up here as we were thinking through as I was thinking through the weight of these two words but God and I was thinking about the extravagant grace and goodness of God and offering salvation to his people I recognize that in a very real way I have I've allowed my mind to drift away from the real grounding the real, the real basis for God bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life I've completely separated that from the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection I've treated that as though he sends his son, Christ Jesus, to make salvation possible. And then over here, he does some other things. But as you read through, for instance, 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. At the end of that chapter, you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Beloved, what you see in the crucifixion of Christ Jesus is not just the offer of salvation. It is the ransoming of all that is broken, of all that is enslaved, of all that needs to be brought to life. Why did Christ Jesus need to be fully man with a human body and a human soul so that he could redeem the whole of man? So he could give you a new mind and a renewed heart and new affections. 
When he raised from the dead three days later, what was he doing? Was he just showing that his father's wrath had been completed? No, he was saying, you too will be raised, not just physically at the end of the age, but even now at the appointed time. By the working of the Spirit, by the power of God, that resurrection power, that resurrection life would reach back into your life and cause you to come to life. So as we come to the table this morning, we don't just recognize the purchase or let me back up. We don't just recognize Christ Jesus satisfying the wrath of the Father. We recognize Christ Jesus doing all that was necessary to bring us to this point. That we too would turn and trust and believe and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done to bring us to this very point. The sending of your son Christ Jesus to take upon himself the full wrath that we were due, and not only that, but that we would be redeemed, body, mind, and soul, that you then would call us to life, that we would see Christ as glorious, that we would repent, that we would believe, and we would be saved. So as we come to your table this morning, Father, I pray that you would meet us here, that in Christ Jesus we would feast and we would be strengthened. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.